What's up, friends at 92? My name is Adam, and it's my joy to be your senior pastor here at First United Methodist Kearney. Uh, I want to say also thank you to those who will be experiencing this message online or listening to it on our brand new podcast. Today, we're celebrating baptisms and receiving new members at our Westside campus. So we're giving y'all a little taste of that video life. I was so excited about this message. I wanted to be the one to preach it to you. We're in uh, the next part of our series called That's My Jam, where we're looking at some of our most treasured hymns and the scriptures that inspired them. Have you ever noticed that we've got our own Christian versions of stuff? Right? Like we have our own publishing houses, Methodist Publishing House, Abington Press. We have our own radio stations. Nothing wrong with that. We have our own conferences. You can go to a Christian event. We have our own theme parks. We have our own comedians. This is John Christ. He's hilarious, but you got to be a Christian to get his jokes. We have our own music and movies and movies about the music. Right, I can only imagine, classic Christian song. It's like 15 years old and that's what we make a Christian movie about. We have our own dating websites. Now nothing wrong with Christian Mingle. I don't think the church is the kindest to single people by the way, so this is not a dig at that. I just think the tagline, love is patient, love is kind, love is here, is a bit manipulative. And friends, just to show you the absurdity of all this, we have our own gum, testaments. Oh and it's sugar free. So it's, it's as inclusive as possible. Testaments, gum. And to me, all of this illustrates the tendency of Christians to withdraw from the world and create something separate. It's like we don't want to get contaminated, so we separate ourselves from the world that we're supposed to be trying to reach. This approach doesn't reflect well on Christians. In a 2010 book, based on uh, extensive research, the book was called Unchristian, the authors and researchers report that two of the main perceptions among emerging generations about Christians are that Christians are hypocritical and judgmental. John 3.16, one of the, the most well-known scriptures begins, for God so loved the world. As Christians, it's hard to say that we love the world like God does when we're separating ourselves from it. But the other side of that coin is when Christians look so much like the world, you can't tell any difference. People are watching our social media feeds. People are watching how we behave at school or at work or in our neighborhoods. Brennan Manning has a stinging quote that describes when Christians are no different from the world. He said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Ooh! That one keeps me up at night. I think there's a tension between separation from the world and participation in the world. And I believe the call of Christians is found in the middle. God created the world good. God sent his son to be the savior of the world. But the scriptures also call God's children to be set apart from the world. This is from 1 Peter chapter 1. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance or before you came to faith. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. 
This concept of holiness is a major theme in the Bible. In the New Testament, it's used 269 times. And in the Old Testament, we find this word holiness or holy used 454 times. Now in the New Testament, being holy is, is often describing something that is set apart. And we're gonna come back to this concept later. In the Old Testament, many times God is described as holy to mean something different, different from, or pure, or separated from that which is unclean. This is what the hymn, Holy, 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 is about. It was written by Anglican Bishop Reginald Heber in 1861. It begins, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And the concept of holiness is described very well when we sing the words, There is none beside thee, perfect in power, in love, and purity. The song also describes cherubim and seraphim. A lot of people are familiar with the nature or the concept of angels or cherubs, but what's a seraphim? What is is that all about? Let's dive in together to the scripture that inspired this great hymn. We're going Old Testament. We're going to be reading from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. Isaiah is, is one of the most diverse books in the whole Bible. It contains history, poetry, prophecy, uh, visions like, like we're going to read today, and, and it includes many of the most famous prophecies foretelling the coming of the Messiah, who, who we would come to know as Jesus. Our scripture this morning contains a vision that the prophet Isaiah has about the throne room of God, and it comes from chapter 6. We're going to start with verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So immediately we get a little historical nugget that helps us place uh, this section of Isaiah on a timeline. King Uzziah died in 739 BC. And this was shortly before the Assyrians would invade the kingdoms of Israel and Judah and carry the people off into exile. And that's described later on in the book of Isaiah as well. And so the prophet's vision describes a grand temple with God in this majestic position. And and God isn't alone in the throne room. Let's read on. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Okay, so now we see where some of the inspiration for this hymn, Holy, 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 comes from. We have seraphim singing what would become a famous phrase. It's repeated, uh, part of it, in the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible. Also, what are seraphim? That They can fly, uh, they can speak, they have six wings. Uh, Later on, we're going to read that they have hands. This is the only place in the whole Bible where this word seraphim is used to describe divine beings. In Hebrew, the word seraphim is related to the Hebrew words for fire or or burning. And we're going to read more about that in a moment. Their song, Holy, 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 is in praise of God, who is separate and seated high on God's throne. At the sound of their voices, the seraphim's voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. 
So Isaiah is expressing his unworthiness to be in the presence of God. His lips represent his whole self as unclean, as opposed to God who is pure and perfect. But next in Isaiah's vision, these winged seraphim provide him with aid. We read this in verses six and seven. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So this hot coal touching the lips of the prophet kind of is symbolic of two things. The cleansing of his whole self and and the significance of the mouth that will speak God's word to God's people. Isaiah, is he's being commissioned for the work God is calling him to do. His work as a prophet. He had cried out as being unworthy and now he has been accepted and shown that he's up for the task which is brought up next. We read this in, in verse eight in closing. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. So this vision concludes and, and he receives instructions of what to say and, and kind of for how long, that's what comes next in the chapter. Isaiah is sent by God for a specific task. He's been assured that he's qualified and he's given instructions for how to speak to people. Isaiah's vision contains some strange elements, but I think it sums up how a lot of us feel about God. That God is very distant, that God is is separate or, or unapproachable. For many people, God seems distant. Isaiah struggled with, with feeling even worthy of being in the presence of God. And I've had many people express these this to me in my years as a pastor. Like, how could God love me or accept me with all the things I've messed up? The vision of God that Isaiah has also describes these crazy winged creatures. There's smoke going off everywhere. Everything's quaking. It's a pretty intimidating scene. This vision that Isaiah has describes the holiness, the otherness of God. So different from us that we needed something else. That's why God sent Jesus. God is so holy that, that, that we needed we needed help to make up the difference. You know, it's hard to get your mind around a God exalted on a throne, surrounded by flying seraphim that we're too scared to even look at. But if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. In the vision of Isaiah, God provided atonement to cleanse Isaiah from his sins. Generations later, God would provide Jesus to atone atone for our sins and make us pure in the sight of God. In the New Testament, we see a very different picture of the throne of God. This is from the book of Hebrews, chapter four. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. 
God is so holy, so pure, so completely different from us that we needed a savior to bridge the separation between ourselves and God. This is what God did by sending Jesus in the form of a person that could empathize with our weakness. He sent Jesus, who was like us, to show us what God is like. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, he covers the gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness. Friends, God sent Jesus to make us holy. Because of Jesus, we can now have access to God. We can approach God's throne of grace. We can cross the chasm that separated us. We can approach boldly, the scripture said, the throne of grace to receive help in our time of need. When we put our faith in Jesus, God doesn't just see the sum total of our sins. He looks at us with the holiness of his son that he sent to take our place. That's the good news. But that isn't where the journey of faith ends. When we uh, read from 1 Peter earlier, you may remember this. Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. What does it mean to be holy and how do we do it? I believe for Christians, to be holy means to be set apart for a purpose. But I also believe that being set apart doesn't mean being separated from. My buddy Steve came up with this and I just think it's brilliant, right? I want you to think about your pizza cutter at your house. Yeah, that's right. Think about your pizza cutter. It has a specific purpose, right? So cut that pizza. But where do you keep your pizza cutter at your home? Is it like on a mantle or some protective case somewhere, like, like sacred in your house? Now, if it is, please text me. I would love to come see your amazing pizza cutter. No, it's, it's in the drawer with all the other kitchen stuff, right? So the pizza cutter is set apart for a specific purpose, but it isn't separated from all the other items. The question then is, is, is Christians, what does it mean for us to be set apart for? We're set apart for a purpose. And what's our purpose? To increase in love of God and neighbor. That's what Jesus said everything comes down to. Now that seems simple, but it ain't easy. When we increase in love of God and neighbor, we become more like Christ, more holy. And in that way, holiness does have a moral result to it. The more holy we become, the more pure we become, and the more freedom we have from sin. So to increase in holiness does mean to decrease in sin. And this is Methodism's greatest contribution to Christianity. The audacious idea that when you get saved, it's the start of a journey, not the end. It's the starting line, not the finish line. The optimistic belief that says when you place your faith in Christ, you sign up to be changed, to enter a process to become more and more like him. That's holiness. Methodist founder John Wesley thought it was essential to the Methodist movement. Holiness. This is what he said. Our main doctrines, which include all the rest, are three. 
that of repentance, of faith, and of holiness. That's why I believe holiness is found in between separation from the world and participation in the world. We don't totally withdraw from the world that God loves. We're like pizza cutters in the drawer with all the rest. But we still have a specific purpose that we're called to. Not to conform to the world, but to increase in love of God and neighbor. So, preacher, how do we actually do that? How do we become more holy? We do the things God instructs in God's word, and those help us increase in love of God and neighbor. Wesley described this as participating in the means of grace. This is when we put ourselves in the position to receive grace from the Holy Spirit and to increase our love of God and neighbor. Now, some of those things we do individually, these would be things like prayer or or fasting or being generous with with our resources, uh, serving others. those Those are some practices we can do as an individual. Other things we do together. One of them is worship. So good for you, you're already doing it. Uh, Another uh, big thing to Wesley were the sacraments participating in communion or baptism, just like we're doing at Westside and just like we'll do at 92 on September 1st, by the way. For Wesley, uh, growing in grace, the means of grace wasn't just an individual thing. It was also a communal thing. It was something we did together, caring for the poor, meeting in groups for mutual encouragement and Bible study. These are the things we do. These are practices we make a part of our life to grow in holiness. We have a bunch of these opportunities for you here at First United Methodist. I hope you'll take advantage of them. Sherry has a ton of options. I'm gonna lift up two to you this morning and they happen to be the two things I'm gonna lead. But it's my sermon, so that's how it goes, right? <laughs> but in September, I'll be helping host a Monday night football group at Nikki's Pizza. This is an experiment in holiness, and I'll bet you never thought about football that way before. We're going to be doing normal stuff, watching pizza, watching pizza, watching football, sharing pizza. Some, some people might even order a beer. I don't know. We'll see. Right? At the same time, it's going to be different, though. If an adult orders a beer, whatever. I probably don't want you to order four. At the same time, our group is going to be different. We're going to be sharing a lot of laughs and good conversation. We're going to treat our wait staff with respect. And we are going to be good tippers. And you will be amazed at the amount of ministry that can be done simply by finding ourselves in that holy middle ground between separation from the world and participation in the world. I'd love for you to join me. Nikki's Pizza, Monday nights. On Sunday nights, I'll also be leading a group that's gonna focus on five practices that can help us grow in our love of God and neighbor. It's called a spiritual apprenticeship. And all that means is we're gonna try and learn from Jesus and really try and do the things he taught us to do. We'll meet twice a month, and I hope you'll consider these and the tons of opportunities that Pastor Sherry and the discipleship team have put together. These are our means of grace for us to continue our journey of faith, to increase our holiness, to become more like Christ. 
Because friends, Christ came to make us holy. So how will you respond? May we each echo Isaiah who said, here I am, send me. Let's pray. God, we confess this morning that sometimes we, we err too much on either of those two things. Sometimes we want to withdraw from the world because we don't want to be contaminated or we want to stay safe or we just don't want to mess with it. And so it's easier to hunker down and circle up in our Christian circles. God, other times we confess that we haven't been marked by love of, of, of you and our neighbor that people might be surprised to find out we're a Christian and that we haven't given a thought to what it means to be more holy and we just go participating in all the same things the world does. So help us to find that middle ground, God. Help us to be holy as you are holy. Give us the courage to make spending time with you to to do the means of grace a priority in our lives not so that we can feel like Christian black belts, but so that we can become more and more like your son to be holy as you are holy. And everybody said, amen.